Welcome, Thomas. Hello, great to be here. Uh, uh, Happy New Year, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I guess we'll talk today about how great a year it's going to be. Oh, tell me about it. I think, you know, the first thing I found after this alcoholic haze evaporated from Moscow was uh, Dmitry Medvedev's um, projections. Have you seen yes. this? Yes, I have, but yes. please. I mean, it's, it's, it's big. It's uh, among those that he uh, saw, he saw oil at $150. It's pretty far away from this. We're down about 40% since uh, summer. He saw the Fourth Reich, as he calls it. So Germany taking all the Baltic countries, the Kiev Republic, Poland, and so on, and becoming one big country before splitting up. Uh, EU will collapse, of course. Everybody will collapse. America will get divided. Yeah. California and Texas will become independent. Yes. Texas will be in alliance with, with Mexico. Um, there are no projections. Yes, because, Mexico, because Mexico and, and Texas get along so well today. Always. They always <laughs> did. They always did. Tear down that wall. Since 1840s, they did nothing else but actually getting along. Yes. But, yes. Tear down that wall. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so that was, the, 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 these were the projections. We have, unfortunately, a lot more to worry about than uh, Mr. Medvedev's um, alcoholism. So, um, you know, we'll, I, I suggest we go through for some of those parts of the world. But you have the suggestion of the angle. Yes. So this is the question I've been pondering as the new year started, and it fit perfectly with, with what you wanted to talk about today. So here's my question and then we'll address it through your lens. And that is, if Russia's special operation had lasted only three days, or let's say, you know, let's be realistic and say two weeks, and it had been successful, how different would the world look today? It's an excellent question because actually the answer depends on where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, starting with Russia, I think Russia is the most obvious case because in Russian case, things would have been much better for the Russian regime and, and Russia in general. And I'm not writing off Russia yet for reasons that I'm gonna expound on in a moment, but I'll, that's the only obvious case. There are countries that have benefited from this being a drawn out conflict mm -hmm. rather uh, than a three day or a two week, if you wish, solution. And again, I think it's worth dwelling on that for a little and asking ourselves why and what it means. And in some cases, better for others doesn't mean better for us, mm -hmm. us, the, um, the, the the supporters of democracy around the world, yes. <laughs> the yes. ultimate okay. enemies of tyranny. That's not necessarily positive for us. It's been positive for a couple of countries that actually benefit from, from this drawn down um, conflict. And in some cases, uh, there are some allies that have been um, maybe sobered up by mm -hmm. by this being a drone armed co conflict. Is it our is? allies or Russia's allies? Uh, our allies. I don't okay. think I don't think we can really speak of Russian allies. There's a number of countries that benefit from this situation directly. Um, allies with the exception of Belarus, really, mm -hmm. it's hard to really speak of, of direct allies. So we'll come back so to Belarus China, in a moment. China is not an ally? In so China is a, um, is, a, is a strategic collaborator 
Mm. It's a country that uses a lot of its soft power, whatever is left of this after 2022, which otherwise was disastrous for China and its image around the world, to support Russia. Um, I think Wall Street Journal had this article mid-December that shows that how deep Xi Jinping's commitment to Russia is. It's a personal thing, but since it's now a personal regime, it's no mm. longer a collegial dictatorship, but it's a personal dictatorship, that allegiance matters. So he was offered sort of an economic overview of Russia as a country without any future, especially with the green technologies coming in and energy change and so on. So basically, an economy that depends on fossil fuels has no future. Apparently, he completely dismissed that, crossed mm -hmm. it off and wrote, I don't know, Fei Hua, Wan Jianhua, something like this, means nonsense, more or less. So his commitment is, is, is very deep. It's personal. What it actually means in practical terms for Russia, it's a bit of a question mark. It's a bit of a question mark. Definitely um, different impact in different different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, yes, broadly, we can point to North Korea, Iran, and China as countries that are close to Russia strategically, mm -hmm. whether they're really allies in military terms, Iran to some degree, and Belarus, of course, is mm -hmm. as well. But Okay. Um, I wouldn't go that far um, yet. So let's let's start with Russia really at the center of this, um, because between the three days or two weeks and now, 12 months, there is 2023 ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And is 2023 ahead of us another two weeks, another three days or another 10 months? And right now, my bet is that it's another 10 months now. And, and that's, a, that's a sobering thought. Of course, for the Russian regime, it would have been much better to install a puppet regime in Kiev back in March last year. There's no two ways about it. We all right. know about it. However, this is not over yet because it does seem that Russia has moved parts of its economy towards a war economy mm -hmm. mindset. The West hasn't done it. Right. Even the United States hasn't done it, despite a major surge in troops in Europe, 40,000 additional troops that, that Biden sent to Europe, Romania, Greece, Poland. Um, but from the economic perspective, despite all the different changes in semiconductor business, in new energy and batteries and so on, but it's not yet war economy. And this is important because we know at least since October that the West is running out of the ammunition for Ukraine. Right. 155 millimeter ammunition that Ukraine is using. I, mean, I think in, in November they passed a million rounds. So this is a first world war of intensity. When the front line is not moving, like it's not moving now around Bakhmut, there's apparently <laughs> 11 brigades on the Ukrainian side that are tied up to, to, to hold to that piece of, of, of territory. Nothing's moving, but the destruction on both sides is amazing it's 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 absolutely terrifying you we saw it in the news uh high marses that uh, destroyed two um uh two two camps uh one in donetsk one in Kherson region the one in donetsk is in the open news in 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 russia but when if the west doesn't switch over to war economy there's going to be a problem of ammunition given mm -hmm. that we have other theaters to watch over in at least east asia in the first world war this was a realization after about one year. So Lloyd George uh, became Minister of Munitions in UK, famous Lloyd George, who was then Versailles Treaty and 
um, sort of a, a Welsh uh, politician, but hugely influential in the 10s and 20s in, in, mm. in British politics. And he was credited with this miracle of um, uh, bringing uh, the ammunition production to the levels that the First World War, a similar trench war to this Ukrainian war, sorry, Russian invasion in Ukraine. And that is something that, that was possible thanks to new mobilization of workforce and of, of resources and assets in, in the UK. We don't see it now. What, what, why, why don't we? Wouldn't it be good for an economy that's suffering from inflation? Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think war is actually inflationary. War okay. in general is inflationary because you have a lot of uh, public funds that mm -hmm. are being injected into this. Mm -hmm. This is something that's purchased by uh, public authorities for immediate use. And mm -hmm. therefore money is basically created out of out of thin air so that's that's inflationary it's good if there is unemployment but we mm -hmm. don't have unemployment we have rather full use of of capacity right now and that includes the uk which i'm bringing as an example from 1915 1916 under lloyd george another example is albert speer during the um the second world war uh, the german nazi minister of industry i think uh, mm -hmm. after uh, the uh, tragic death of Tots, who was head of the, we call it today after Chinese state-owned enterprise, so government-directed enterprises that led the production of, of ammunition for that effort. And by 1943, Germans needed to put a lot of production in there. And Speer, by the way, was mm, judged and, and sentenced in Nuremberg because he used a lot of forced labor in, mm. those, in those factories, a lot of um, workers from occupied territories, not least in General Gubernatorschaft, so Poland today, were sent there and died by thousands under the Allied bombing in yeah. those factories, so British and American bombs. So he was a munition minister. So these are examples during the First World War and Second World War that you create the entire ministry to actually come up with a solution right. to, that, to that attrition during the war of attrition. And right now we don't have it. We don't have it because honestly, people in Paris or or the Hague, or Madrid are not that concerned. You know, this mm -hmm. is some. This is something that's happening far away. Of course, it has led to significant strategic splits, not least between Berlin and Paris. We don't know yet what comes out of this. Maybe we'll have an mm -hmm. opportunity to talk about it more in detail because that affects the future of the entire European Union prospect and the future of Ukraine. Much beyond what Mr. Medvedev believes, a complete collapse of European Union. What did yeah. he say? after UK rejoins. <laughs> so, but why am I uh, talking about it in the context of Russia? Russia lost about 2000 tanks between those first three days and the end of the year. That's a mm -hmm. lot, right? Especially in the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of loss of the equipment and during the Kharkov uh, offensive, the Kharkiv offensive by, by Ukraine. But Russia also sits on 10,000 tanks from the Warsaw Pact. Uh, Cold War era. Now you can say, well, there were these are 1980 tanks, but who cares? Well, the problem is in the war of attrition, quantity eventually translates into quality. Mm. Hence, it, the, the importance of size. So maybe Xi Jinping wasn't so wrong uh, writing off the dismissal of Russian of Russian economy. Russia does have resources still. It's not Soviet Union, but it does have resources. And it's capable of refurbishing about a thousand of these tanks 
from the old Cold War inventories a year. That mm -hmm. would mean that this thing can go on for another five years easily. Yes. That is, so you can say, well, we will destroy them easily. Each time you destroy them, you're going to use this ammunition that the West doesn't have. Right. Has right. Not so quantity really, really matters. And there is a very good article in the recent American Affairs, which I recommend, a couple of good articles in this issue. Uh, that's the December issue. Um, the It's about comparative um, size of different economies. We used to, we're used to GDP, right? GDP per capita, mm -hmm. GDP by PPP, GDP by, uh, by constant prices and so on. That's okay at times of peace. In times of war, you need to actually have to take into account different way of looking at resources. And if you look at GDP, you have to bracket out services because mm -hmm. let's say your hairdressers just don't matter as much as production of ammunition or capacity. Mm -hmm. We learned about it early during the COVID three years ago, that countries with a lot of machine tool, machine tool industry, so say Switzerland or Taiwan or, or South Korea, very quickly could actually um, rejig their systems to produce PPEs mm -hmm. at home because they, they know how to build new machines. But other countries that rely exorbitantly on service business finance and other services, Th that is, sorry, I hear I'm breaking up. I don't know if this is any better. Um, so so th that is. No, that not is, you, Thomas. I'm, you okay. keep going. You sound fine to me. Okay, so fine. So the uh, the issue here in this in this article shows that if you actually take the productive capacity of the GDP, so uh, really industry, construction, agriculture, then those comparisons look very, very different, very mm. different. Therefore, Russian economy is not of a size of Spain or Netherlands or Belgium or whatever the comparisons were before the war, but it's actually in these terms slightly larger than Germany. So mm. Germany is 90% of Russia's capacity. France is 44% of Russia's capacity. Mm. And now here is a point which is really sobering for us here in the United States. There is a subsequent comparison between the United States and its number one enemy, China. You know what our productive capacity is compared to China, percentage-wise? No. Give me a guess. What do you think? Ask me the question again. What is the productive capacity of the American economy compared to China if we bracket out services? So just the industry, construction, and agriculture. Uh, we have 30% of their economy. You wrote an article. You're good. <laughs> Some hearts for Greg, please. It was well done. So that is, so that is, is Russia. 30%? 33%, yes. Okay. Okay, just one heart, but that's enough. That's enough. He did well. Um, so these, so here's, so that's a Russia, right? Of course, for the Russian regime, it would have been much better to, to finish with this and install Medvedchuk or some other Yanukovych V2 in uh, March of last year, and then slowly go back to normal with Germans. Let's not forget, Germans built Nord Stream 1 after the invasion of Georgia and mm. Nord Stream 2 after the first invasion of Ukraine and Crimea right. takeover, right? So who cares if the Kiev Republic right. is Medvedev? Well, and that was one of my questions is if if the special operation had been successful, 
and taken a week or two or three days, would we still be talking about it? Would the West have sanctioned Russia or would we have just went, oh, damn, that's a shame. Yeah, so here the credit really goes to Ukrainians, their leadership and their prowess. And of course, their closest allies, their closest mm -hmm. allies that have been uh, supporting them ever since. And I think that's a, that's a great lesson for Taiwan, of course. That's what you have to mm -hmm. show, right? You, nobody's going to help you if you're not fighting yourself. Uh, hence, a huge increase in, in armament um, spending in many of the budgets in, in, in the Rimland countries, right? Finland and, and, mm -hmm. and Sweden and Eastern Europe and East Asia and so on. That's because that's the realization. If Ukraine were, if Ukrainians were not fighting, if the government escaped, like the Polish government in 1939, um, nothing would have happened. And this, so, this, this is their success has been as much on the battlefield as it as it has been on Twitter. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Information it's, war was, was lost been, in yeah. the first hours of that war. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this may have been the greatest PR campaign in the history of mankind. And there, there's again a lot of lessons. Anne Applebaum has an excellent article in in um, the Atlantic. Yes. About I, yeah, I, I sent it to you. It's, it's actually she's actually in Taiwan. It shows what what different what the different um, mechanisms are and what a civil society can do over and above the government to get ready for the information war against a, a ruthless dictatorship and, and a tyranny. So she draws some parallels between Taiwan and Ukraine being in, in Taipei herself. Of course, she's a historian of uh, Soviet and communism and so on. So it's very interesting to 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 read her fresh take on on how the Taiwanese are preparing for exactly what the Ukrainians pulled off masterfully. So anyway, can I, can I yeah. ask you, since you brought her up, can I ask one question? So we've heard from Ilya Ponomarev on Thursdays often that the Ukrainians are, his word for it is anar anarchistic. Hmm. They're individualistic. And that largely their success has not been waiting for someone to tell them what to do. But I have a gun. I got five got friends with guns. Let's go fight a war. And is that a and and I think that's largely been a big part of their success is that they're every individual to their core is fighting for their homeland. And then they have some organization on top of that. Does Taiwan also share those qualities, the Taiwanese people? It does. And you know what? They and the Ukrainians don't have to go far to see where the success stems from. Flip the page 20 years and think Al-Qaeda. Why was Al Qaeda so successful? Mm. Cells, precisely because of that. Cells. Yes, interesting. I had never, I had never made that comparison, but that's really brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to give you a heart, Thomas. How do I do that? Oh, there oh, you thank go. Thank you. Well, the first one. <laughs> I'm going to give. I think that's my first heart. All right. Nice, uh, nice, nice. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one because, of course, next to Ukraine, there's a critical, pivotal country in 2023, and that's Belarus absolutely critical for the survival of Ukraine as an independent nation. You see uh, in some quarters from uh, Zaluzhny, the head of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces, to Zelensky himself, there are certain voices saying, well, another invasion, another attack on Kiev is not impossible. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not impossible because Belarus is there, very close. Yes. And so there are different views on, on, on that. We know that Lukashenko has managed to hold off that prospect throughout 2022, but we have a new year. And towards the end of last year, a couple of things have happened. So 
Belarus has two groups, one in the north, one in the south, two military groups, uh, one with two brigades, uh, mechanized brigades and two artillery brigades. And that's in Grodno for the south, another one in north, also two mechanized brigades and two artillery brigades. And you say, well, a big deal. It is a big deal because it has a mobilizing capacity. It can mobilize up to 140,000 troops. And although apparently a lot of its material, its equipment, have been given away or leased out to Russia, it still has a lot of post-Cold War equipment, mm. just like Russia has. Mm. So it's not something that should be entirely dismissed, even though um, we don't know exactly what the strategy would be. If Lukashenko comes under a lot of pressure, new pressure from Russia, it's not impossible that they will engage Ukraine militarily in some sort. There are two scenarios. One is just simply tying up significant Ukrainian forces uh, along mm -hmm. the northern border, and that's predominantly to prevent Belarusian forces under Russian command from cutting off Ukraine from Poland, which is, of course, mm -hmm. the lifeline for, mm -hmm. for Ukraine and the big question mark for U.S. strategists for Taiwan in the future. Taiwan doesn't have Poland next door. Right, right. So, so that 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 flow of, of material and forces and of course the 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 troops uh, going to the west for training and coming back and so on that that would be the ambition of the Belarusian forces to to cut it off that's 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 one area one scenario but the second scenario is just basically stationing those mobilized troops in the north and tying up significant forces just as they are fairly tightly located now in the Donetsk region because right. of the major standoff over Bakhmut, which is which is very intense in terms of use of, of Ukrainian uh, forces. Belarus is important, and Ukrainians understand this. Ukrainians actually have managed diplomatic, they ma maintain diplomatic relations with Minsk, strangely enough, mm. whereas most of European Union has no um, uh, relations with Lukashenko. <laughs> You mean they maintained relationships before the they invasion? Maintain, they maintained diplomatic presence in, in Belarus, which is which is quite strange. On the other hand, their relations with the government in exile, because remember, the government in exile is the lawfully, legally legitimate government of Belarus that won right. the election in 2020. So Lukashenko is little more than a timpot dictator maintained by Russia, um, but maintained by Russia without any other options. So basically, Europeans following you know, Poland and, and Baltic countries cut off Belarus completely from the market. That means mostly fertilizer exports. Mm -hmm. uh, but that means that essentially he's completely dependent on Russian economy. The, 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 the dovetailing of the Belarusian and Russian economy accelerated after 2020 um, mm -hmm. crushed election and demonstrations in, 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 in Belarus. I have, so, a question. I have a question for you about, and maybe you're going to get to this. Why hasn't he, in, why hasn't Lukashenko engaged? What's what's his motive for staying out so far, out of uh, the country? Fear, fear. There's not much support for a, an adventure in Ukraine, in Belarus. In fact, I spoke about it before. There is a, it started as a battalion of Belarusian mm -hmm. volunteers helping Ukrainians. Right. Uh, I think right now it's regiment. Um, Konstantin Kalinovsky, named after a Belarusian national hero of 19th century who fought against Muscovy, um, the Russian, uh, Russian Tsarist forces during the um, uprising in 1863. 
So there is a Kalinovsky regiment, apparently it's growing to a brigade. So that's a significant force of Belarusians who are uh, trained, exercised, active in the battle and ready to go back and fight. So I, there's a fear, there's a fear that, you know, this is Ilya's view, right? That you, how you have to oppose these regimes, you have to oppose them um, using force, uh, kind yes. of force. And uh, that would mean that any attempt by Lukashenko to get actively in, engaged in this war could actually trigger civil war in Belarus. We don't know how strong the allegiance of the of the Belarusian forces would be. Viktor Hrenin is the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He does seem to go under Shoigu now after some very large-scale heavy-duty visits by just about everybody from the Russian leadership in Minsk. I think it was late November or early December. So so you have three forces in, in Belarus. You have the regime, so Hrenin, the new Minister of Foreign Affairs, who is sort of trying to uh, walk the tightrope a little bit like the previous one and maintain some relations with Vatican. Um, then you have the Kalinovsky Battalion Regiment, maybe Brigade in Ukraine, and you have the government in exile, um, Pavel Latushka, who's, who's in Warsaw, I think. Um, so they're, they're very active, uh, maintaining diplomatic relations with the key partners in, in uh, Europe and, and the United States. Um, so, so what does it mean in terms of nine months versus three days? Of course, um, the prolonged uh, conflict in Belarus is bad news for Belarus because any loss on the battlefield in Ukraine for Russia means that Russia would be trying to annex Belarus just to bring some spoils back to Moscow. I, I need a victory. Bring me I a... Need a victory. And here's a victory. So I, I was in Kazakhstan before COVID. I remember um, traveling on the night train with a lot of Russian nationalists. And I asked them about it because there was so much excitement about Crimea being Russian. And they were not excited about the prospect of Belarus uh, being mm. taken over because they basically consider Belarus already part of Russia. Mm. So it's not something that would stir a major, um, you know, new wave of nationalistic sentiment in the quarters that are still missing that in Russia. Um, it's considered already part of Russia, but it could lose completely its sovereignty, whatever puppet sovereignty it has at, at, at this moment. So for, for Belarus, the extended conflict is bad news. It's bad news because the situation and the entrenchment and the training of Belarusian volunteers in the hot war um, is advancing a scenario of potentially a civil conflict in the country uh, when the push comes to show. So, well, that's what, that's what I was going to ask you is it seems to me that Lukashenko is really in a, in a terrible place in that he's afraid of his own people and he's afraid of Putin and you know, he, can't, he can't make everybody happy. No, he can't. He can't win. I mean, this man the, the, he, he, to survive in 2020, he made a lot of compromises, and mm. uh, that's in any dictatorship only until the next chapter, as we know. These mm. people never feel sufficiently secure, and that's mm. a problem. It's it's almost ludicrous when you read their next security strategy. Uh, yeah. There's never enough security. So so that's the, that's Belarus, and I think the three day. Um, scenario would have been somewhat better for 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 stability of Belarus and for stability of this regime. Whatever that means for Belarusian people is a completely separate issue, right? Because we, we we don't really have a very reliable polls and surveys how the division between city and countryside really spells out three years almost 
two and a half years after the, uh, the, the, the popular uprising. But we do know that there was an election and that Lukashenko was not the popular choice. No, we know we know that. We know so that, that much. That's a pretty important piece of data. That's a pretty important piece. However, let's not forget national identity, even something as big as national identity, is always fluid. Mm-hmm. It's in those 10 months that Ukrainians have found national identity, more so than in the previous 30 years yes. of their notional independence. So very quickly, things can change in times of crisis. This is crisis for Belarus as well. So I, I cannot really fall back on 2020 and see, oh, well, uh, Tikhanovskaya would have uh, won the elections today because maybe some you know, mm-hmm. military um, colonels active in, in Ukraine would. We don't know. Yeah, we do know. I mean, I'm glad you said that about national identity because who Ukraine is today is not the same country and they're not the same people that they were 10 months ago. No, absolutely not. And obviously there's the bonding of war and defending each other and fighting for your homeland. But but I think it's also important to remember that, you know, Zelensky was not a popular president at the beginning of 2022. That's a, you, you need different leaders for times of peace and yes. different leaders for times of war, which doesn't, it's not a good prospect for him once the peace accords have been signed. And we know it from history, and he shouldn't be too surprised if he, yes. if he knows that too. But let's remember about national identity. Countries may have a grand strategy that project their, especially large countries, project their, their importance, their power in the world, but all nations have some form of identity, which is created by the definition of self vis-a-vis the other. Mm-hmm. But first you have to define who the other is. And in times of conflict, that's very simple. Well, that's why Ukraine, we Ukraine had, for, for, for those three decades, previous decades, different governments in different way. And of course, there was the push from the streets in Kiev twice in 2004 and 2013 that made it much more obvious. But historically, the two-vector strategy has a lot to do with the history of these people. Yes. That it was either under Russian dominance or before under Polish-Lithuanian dominance. Mm. And so there was more than one other. And if there is more than one other, it's difficult to create a single nationhood. Of course, the time of this crisis where the countries in Eastern Europe, not least Lithuania and Poland, are the closest allies that Ukraine can has at least can have at least as long as this conflict is ongoing. Um, it's a no-brainer who the other is, and that helps with the creation of the national identity. And if you look around the world, these others may occasionally change. I mean, even here in this country, it changed. Yeah. You and I were born when the other was the Soviet Union. Right. The other for Americans is now China. Or it's a, it's a different it's a different context. The other yeah. for the United States in 19th century was Mexico. Yes, there's always the other, and for some time during the Second World War, Germany was the other. So you do you you do redefine a little bit the the some of these things are fluid, some of the things are much more long term or more entrenched. Others can really take a quick turn in time of crisis. And so let me pass on to the third country, which is learning very quickly from Ukrainian uh, experience, and that's Taiwan, of course. Um, and what does it mean? Three days or, or 10 months? 10 months gave Taiwan time mm-hmm. to learn from Ukrainians, to learn from 
the American response to the war, to learn from other countries' response to the war, Taiwan knows who it can count on and who it cannot count on and how. Can so I can I interject that when you say 10 months gave Taiwan time, it's it also took time away from China. It took time away from China because That's China there. cannot be China cannot be happy about the way things are evolving in Ukraine yes. for a number of reasons. Chinese military strategy to a large extent has historically been a copy of the Soviet and Russian military strategy. Chinese military equipment is the carbon copy of uh, Russian military equipment. Russians are not happy about it because their exports of military equipment to China have dwindled the last couple of years as most of these items were happily reverse engineered. Of course, the aircraft carrier is a good example of that as well. And China uh, has been posturing a lot in the last, even last couple of weeks, uh, always underlying their allegiance I wouldn't call it alliance, but allegiance to Russian interests. There was another set of exercises between Russia and China. Mm -hmm. uh, China uh, had the third largest incursion into uh, Taiwanese, not airspace, but across the dividing line in the Taiwan Straits. Then um, its uh, uh, vessel got very close to the American vessel in Southeast China Sea. Its aircraft carrier got very close to Guam upon which it actually crossed the straits between two Japanese islands, uh, Miyakojima and Okinawa. That's very close to Taiwan, but it's still within the extent of Japanese Ryukyu uh, Islands. And it sent a uh, high altitude drone over Miyakojima, over Japan. So right. that led Japan to do what Taiwan does all the time, scrambling fighter jets and, and air defense systems. What Taiwan realizes now, given its different geography from, from Ukraine and learning every day from this experience, is that it needs to speed up weaponry delivery from the United States. It all takes too long, believe it or not, but our Congress, when it signs off on weaponry for Saudi Arabia and for Taiwan in this order, will still send first weaponry to Saudi Arabia and only later to Taiwan, even though our strategy national strategy of the United States is predominantly uh, focused on the Eastern, on the Western Pacific and yes. Asia. So this is how bad the US bureaucracy is. Taiwan is now trying on the back of this experience to engineer a relationship that only Israel has with the United States that is called production. So mm. we have with, with, with Israel um, this joint missile defense uh, program, development program. Uh, that is something that of course, if um, elements of American weaponry could be produced in Taiwan directly more more quickly. That, of course, would help enormously in the preparation. Are we, are we, for, are for is, is the U.S. producing weapons in Israel? It's a, it's a, so if this was a private um, enterprise, I would call it a joint venture. So mm -hmm. it's a joint missile defense development system. Okay. Uh, that, that, that we have in Israel and only in Israel. System or in Israeli, it's it's a collaborative. So there is there is yeah there is a lot of criticism about it because mm -hmm. you know there are some people who say we shouldn't be treating Israel like we treating you know differently for the way we're treating other countries. Right. Uh, John Mersheimer famously uh, wrote about it many many years ago Critically. around the time of the Iraqi War. I think I I have that famous position mm -hmm. by. 
our less than favorite author, a realist. But this is at a time of you know Bush's um, Bush's Bush's wars in in the Middle East. It, 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 so the view was we should start treating Israel like we treat other countries. That hasn't happened, and therefore maybe there is a good reason these days strategically to treat other countries like we like treat Israel. Israel. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you let me ask you a question though about this partnership idea relative to Taiwan, and that is. It makes me think of another place where we formed a partnership, which is around chips. Does does Taiwan's dominance in the chip industry is that great leverage for them to begin to build a similar relationship in the defense industry? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, again, the chip industry is private business entirely. Yes. Here, as well, you know, sorry. in in large scale military. <laughs> um, sorry for the Second Amendment people, but for large-scale military uh, equipment, the only off-taker is the government or governments. Mm, so it's right. a little different when, uh, say, Morris Chang or Robert Tsao, whichever semiconductor mogul from Taiwan, uh, decides to uh, open up major investment in in Arizona and building semiconductor foundries. Well, it's private United. business in Taiwan, but in the U.S., it's very much the government is very much involved. Exactly. Exactly. So I think you're 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 pointing out something something important, and I would hope that um, things are happening, mm -hmm. and that more is happening that's being said about this, which is really important. Uh, let's not forget that exactly is what happened with the Ukrainian um, defense forces uh, during the times of relative peace, or say the first between the first and second conflict with Russia. A lot of preparation, a lot of training a lot of cooperation with both UK and, and the United States. So that's helpful. And we didn't necessarily have it as headline news, right? So so I would I would hope that that you're right about it. But there are certain things that are still missing in that mm -hmm. in that relationship. So let me let me move to another country which is quite pivotal and which makes me uh, singularly worried about 2023. And we actually strangely have never really spoken in depth about it and we're probably gonna run out, run out of time, but it's important. It's important for Ukraine. It's important for the Russia situation and globally and it's Turkey. Because mm -hmm. Turkey this year will have an election and something quite uh, disastrous has happened. Uh, Recep Erdogan before becoming the strongman in, in uh, Turkey winning a number of elections himself or with AKP, his party, was the mayor of Istanbul. In fact, a lot of politicians around the world who become presidents of countries are first mayors of capitals or important cities. Istanbul is not a capital. Um, that's That was the case in, I can remember, the Philippines, Iran, Colombia, Taiwan, um, potentially could be Ukraine. You know, think about Klitschko, right? One day. Mm -hmm. So that is that is kind of a stepping stone. Current mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, was accused of, I think, disparaging power and has been thrown to jail. Mm. He uh, he's the probably one of the most um, viable opposition leaders, a social democrat opposition leaders in the upcoming elections. So this is the third item of what tyrannies do um, after, of course, massaging the economy in a certain way, which, uh, of course, uh, Mr. Erdogan has done by increasing minimum wages 55%, by guaranteeing 
lira denominated uh, bank accounts which are fx protected after that um, huge collapse in lira last year 2021 and early 2022 and by taking a lot of loans and taking loans from countries which were not on the list of turkey's friends so qatar has been an ally for example in the libya war turkey and qatar are on the same side on the um, side of tripoli gna rather than the side of benghazi and and mm -hmm. egypt and and lna as you said but beyond qatar many other countries in the middle east have had fraught relations with turkey in order to focus on just two conflicts that is the kurdish minority and kurds in syria and greece nominally ally within nato greece slash cyprus erdogan signed peace with israel with uae with saudi arabia with egypt despite that conflict in libya mm -hmm. uh, and what it brought immediately money 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 yes. money from qatar money from uae i think it's a swap um loans from saudi arabia loans from russia to build a nuclear power plant rosatom so state-owned enterprise in russia mm -hmm. a very important element of nuclear power let's not forget for those who say hey nuclear let's get independent of um oil and gas and therefore russia will be on its knees rosatom and its different branches are also responsible for um, most of the conversion and enrichment of uranium around the world in the global mm -hmm. markets so it's an, it's, a, it's a key uh, element of the global uranium value chain and is therefore that, it's not that easy to to sanction it do they dominate because they have it or because they're the only country that's willing to deal with it or for some other reason this is how this is unfortunately how the neoliberal market has evolved in the last couple of years those people who had a lot of experience uh, economies of scale and the funds dedicated to this uh, they maintained the capability you know us used to mine a lot of uranium it has significant uranium resources in wyoming and elsewhere it doesn't currently mine any right, right? because it's against environment or, or whatever the reasons are it's not it's not immediately economically successful or profitable the the russian enrichment and conversion we have to separate from mining Mo mm. much of the mining uh, in situ leaching uh, is happening in kazakhstan but a lot of uh, kazakh and canadian product is still converted and enriched by using mm. russian capabilities so that's important turkey is willing to use that uh, technology so here we have a nato country which is in a conflict with a nato country greece which is in cahoots with a nato enemy russia not only that their minister of defense not minister of foreign affairs the minister of defense and head of security went to moscow the other day to discuss a free passage to bomb kurds in syria because of course russia mm. has control over big parts of the of the airspace in syria so syrian uh, representative was on these talks turks and and russians because that's the number one objective prior to the um, elections for erdogan is bombing syrians let's not forget u.s troops are still there so will he be bombing u.s troops in in syrian kurdistan that's a little bit unclear to me but we are losing turkey really quick and turkey has been profiteering from this conflict as it has been extended on the one hand helpful for ukraine not only selling bayraktar drones but now committing to build bayraktar drones in ukrainian factories that's right. real 
and also the the grain deal was quite quite positive but supporting russia let's not forget that there is this Montreal convention dating back from i think 1920s and 1930s that allows turkey the republic of turkey to control the entrance into the black sea for bosphorus turkey at the beginning of the war shut the entrance into the black sea for any navies but guess what after russians moved their navy assets from mm. the mediterranean into the black sea so the russian vessels passed through but the yeah. native vessels can't because turkey has that that power according yeah. to Montre. so this is this is how turkey you know this dervish uh, diplomacy works but uh, calling turkey real asset uh, for nato is a bit of a misnomer in fact part of the surge of your american troops in europe in greece in alexandropolis so it's a close it's a greek um, uh, military base close to marmara sea is viewed as by turks as singularly anti-turkish move hmm. and at the same time we need turkey we need turkey in central asia to fill that vacuum after russia's slow um departure from there and not allowing china to completely take over that region so so it's useful on the one hand it's very dangerous in in southeastern europe there's this concept mavi vatan which is the turkey with the with all the blue parts around it so marmara sea eastern mediterranean and black sea that of course encroaches on the interests of of greece so the the the, the, the greek the idea with all of those greek islands in the aegean extending their control to 12 miles as per the un uh, convention of the law of the sea um the turks say not even one mile because that's too close to the to the, to the Turkish coastline. So we have that issue with quite extremist, irredentist um, ideology by former ar army officers such as uh, Cem Guderinitz uh, or Cihat Yaitsi, no longer really active in the Navy, but very, very vocal about this Turkish space. And somehow it doesn't seem to encroach on Russian space. Um, yep. In fact, there is this cooperation in Russia. Uh, with Russia concerning Syria now. Um, so that is, I think, if this conflict lasted three days, we wouldn't have seen Turkey in a position to profiteer from this as much mm. because Turkey would have felt probably threatened by Russian success and relative lack of Russian success emboldened Turkey to do well. You know, they can do it. Maybe we can do it too. And basically extending their, their sphere of influence way beyond the borders of the country. And do you think, just a quick question, and, and then we'll wrap it up, do you think for a country like Turkey, the fact that Russia's engaged in this invasion and now war with Ukraine, they think it's a the world is distracted, so we can also go do things we wouldn't have done if there wasn't something diverting that attention? Yeah, absolutely. That That's a that's a much broader issue touching on. I mean, we probably have to spend some time on it next. Right, that's next week. That's a, that's a psychological Andrew's mm -hmm. box, as much as it threatens Estonians and Latvians and so on. Um, it's it's a global phenomenon. Yeah. People see, hey, look, you know that 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 these were vital interests of Russia as they spelled them out in 2021. The West didn't listen, and therefore they showed what they can do. And it yeah. doesn't matter that they didn't win in the first three days because the jury is still out. Right. Hey, we also have some issues 
like Viktor Orban, right? Yes. And many others. So that's a that's a that's a bigger issue. That makes me feel that 2023 is not gonna be much more stable than 2022 was. I don't see a, a once once this genie is out of the bottle, how do you put it back? Yeah. Um, that's a that's a scary thought for everybody, not only the Taiwanese, not only the Poles and Japanese and others, but for many other places in the world. That you know, this this last bit of conversation reminds me of a very local phenomenon, and maybe it's worth talking about next week, and that is in some ways, what we're talking about on a geopolitical level, to me, sounds similar to what happens when there's an earthquake or a protest or a fire and you have looting. What we're actually seeing on a, on a global basis is a lot of looting because over there is the main event. You know, all the military or the law enforcement, all the attention is over there. So I'm going to go grab a TV. Yeah. And let's so let's not forget a lot of copycats. So mm -hmm. a couple of days after 9-11, I was in Milano in Italy. And a, and a crazy guy took a small plane and flew it into the tallest building in Milano. Mm, I remember that. Yeah, it just stayed in my mind. That's, that's what happens. A lot of loonies out there. And um, copycat phenomenon is not just an individual thing. It can happen also in larger collectivities to say, look, they've shown we can do it. We can do it too. So that yeah. is that is the big fear, and you know the next stage, of course, is nuclear, right? But it's a uh, it the, the Pandora's box has been open, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there for today. I think we maybe set unless there's some other breaking news, we may have set the stage for next week. Uh, Thomas, thank you for being here.